Hello, this is Jack's Corner, where I discuss issues on society and culture here in America. Welcome, welcome back to Jack's Corner. I am here with the Duchess. Hello, hello. And we're going to have another uh, podcast featuring one of her segments of Sister Me. Uh, Veronica, how are you? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. You know, earlier this um, last year, I had coronavirus. Then I had pneumonia. Then I had a severe cold. And I'm going in for a biopsy on my throat um, on the 19th. But I'm doing well. Um, You know, I had to go through a shattered pelvis and broken ribs. And that was not fun. That was from a fall. Yeah, and I'm still um, recovering. So I'm still kind of, you know, working through all of the nine breaks that were in my pelvis. And um, I must I must say you're pretty strong, though. You really you've overcome so much in the last two years. You know, pretty much since I've known you, you've been overcoming something. Yes, it does seem that way. I don't know what kind of luck you bring me or what. But <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that's a fact. Um I had a stroke with you, and you were there for me. That was uh, a monumental... Uh, and that was prior to COVID. Uh-huh. So, or or I wondered, because you had breathing issues when you first caught the COVID, if you were experiencing COVID symptoms then, because back then you were out of breath, too. Yeah, I think that's what, that's those were the first symptoms that I couldn't breathe right. Yeah, so you've been through a lot. Um but you look you look good. Well, thank you. So do you. You're not using your cane and there was a period of time where you were using your cane and you yes. know. But it's good to see you. It's good to have you back. Thank I you. see you every day, but it's good to see you here on the podcast. It's nice to be in your studio and well, our studio. Be part of you. Yes. Um you'll have to excuse me audience because I'm eating this sugar-free. It's Dreyer's sugar-free um chocolate what is it called? It's double chocolate. Double chocolate has this. It's just remarkable that it's sugar free. Uh, Jackie is a diabetic, so we have to follow certain guidelines on diet. And one of them is to avoid sugar. So we are trying this new uh, sugar free ice cream by Dreyer's and it's really delightful. So anyway, um, I'm having a cone while we're doing this interview. So. It's good. I got into it last night. <laughs> so yeah it's lovely yeah great choice okay um what are you sharing with us today well i've got a couple of different excerpts from sister me so um if you'd like me to start there i can do that okay this is page eight of one of the versions of sister me and sister me um has been compiled over a period of about six years and it's uh experiences that I had while I was incarcerated. Um, So here's one. Throughout the book, I give what we do when you don't have money, when you don't have normal supplies to maintain your health and your, um, your beauty, you come up with different solutions. So here's one of them. A make do a making do method for skin sloughing when buff puffs aren't in the budget or are simply unobtainable use salt for a fast remedy to remove old skin 
cleanse and lightly moisten the face and with dry hands spread salt over the fingertips then avoiding the eye areas use a medium vigorous circular motion to rub the salt over the face reapply more salt as needed then rinse thoroughly if you don't have lotion or oil use contraband margarine save from dinner to massage into the dry areas around the eye and you know those are the types of things that you know are sporadically in, interjected in the uh, text all right, so I'm going to start on page 124. During this past seven years, I've gone to tremendous pains to discover the whys of Veronica and the hows. Why did I ever get to the point, reach that pinnacle that exploded into my senseless crime? How did my choice lead me to such self-destruction? Self-analysis and self-criticism absorbed me. It was inescapable. After all, I was trapped with a life sentence. There was plenty of nothing but time to figure it all out. Doing it, though, was painful and disturbing. There was no escape from myself, from the memories or the consequences. Often, I thought of suicide. A quick, easy turn away from the most ugly and hated image in the mirror. The mirror of comprehension, the one that so perfectly reflects all those things we so efficiently turn our backs on, the conscience in our psyche, old hostilities that were left hidden in that pace of life, cast shadows for the day mare, and when they could no longer be dodged, there it is in front of you. Any alcoholic or drug addict knows about the mental house-cleaning methods, hiding the unsavory under the convenient rug resting below one's conscience, the tired maid of the mind whose sole duty it is to hide the dirt of one's life, suddenly dies when the drugs or alcohol aren't there anymore to feed her. When those substances were plentiful, she could do a wonderful job of concealment. When they were cut off, she can no longer exist there. Then the whirlwind of reality tears through the soul, sweeping away the rug and leaving all the forgotten dirt in plain view. No way to ignore it any longer. Reality has a vice grip on your attention. I call them daymares, like nightmares, but they're during the day. The longer reality is denied, the more savagely it strikes when this moment arrives, and you can't hold it off any longer. It's like being immovably tied to a chair with eyes held forcibly open while the sights and sounds of reality blare into your consciousness. You witness for the first time everything you did and didn't do. All the failures, lies, defeats, cheatings, treachery, greed, the very things that you were most proud of now turn putrid in the light of what you had hidden. It's ugly, verminous. You feel the ugliness and worthlessness permeate everything inside you. Conscience leads you to seek forgiveness. Forgiveness has destroyed the putrid, but emptiness and destruction has been left inside for you to cope with and build beyond. It's time to let in some light into the psyche. Time for new beginnings. There is still life. You've survived. Though weak and tattered, the self remains. Even if scarred beyond the present wreckage of your life, there is a little droplet of worth. Really, no one is worthless, but there's so much deception to get over there, to get over. 
seas of tears to be cried in the unveiling of newfound remorse and shame, only to be relived by your final acceptance of who you were, what you did, now gone, all gone. So dawns the time in which opportunity is recognized, a time to select a new road to travel. In that time, the need for choosing a new redefined self is created, not restored, born. This is the time of recovery. The road is less than a road, more like an arduous journey, a toil, not a highway. With each trembling step, strength builds, slips too, every one of them an injury that you can't stop to let heal. The task is to move on. It really is a matter of life and death. To stop is to know you've given up, and for that there's the quiet death of going back to the oblivion of the dope man's powder and the bottle. But the road is not forever. Healing happens in the process of the travel, and the effort grows a little easier. as you go. When I was in grade school, my mother moved us from the impoverished tenements of Denver's inner city to University Hills, a solidly middle-class suburb. We were just as poor, though. We still bought everything from Goodwill, and my brother and I pilfered garbage cans for odds and ends that we could never afford otherwise. We and a black boy were our, school, were our school's only outcast minorities, and in my observation, we were at the bottom because of our obvious lack of hygiene and readily apparent poverty. The other children were quick to remind me of my inability to make the grade. My only two dresses were torn and held together with safety pins, and my hair was often knotted. I was, without any suggestion of regular cleanliness, my mother held down two low-paying jobs while attending the university. Her time was limited, so she wasn't able to attend to those duties like other mothers of the neighborhood. I was growing up without parents. I skipped school not out of any precocious contempt for education or authority, but to avoid the ridicule and contempt of my classmates. They expressed it pretty vividly in their public spitting sessions, which some of my more race-conscious classmates made into a routine practice. They would corner me or try to catch me when I had to walk under a stairwell whenever we had roll call. Then from their advantageous perch above me, they could drop their spittle with keen aim on my head to the raucous, raucous laughter of the others. There were also the ambushes after school. Hey, you dirty spick, and whack would come a fist or a snowball from the tree or alley. So I became what they call a juvenile criminal, an incorrigible. Why? What horrid crime did I commit? I refused to go to school. Though I loved the acquisition of knowledge, I couldn't endure the public disgrace. I kept my humiliations to myself and had no friends, no confidants, and was an alien even unto my family. I was alone. Life at home was no compensation. It was a horror to me but I won't explore that here. It is so easy to remain silent. It's so understandable for women and children not to expose the abuse when our talk has been so often ignored. After a while, you learn to keep your mouth shut and bear the weight of abuse alone. From that acceptance, it becomes a norm you seek. 
To expose the abuse is to expose myself. There is no escaping the truth that my years of abuse created a large part of my personality. From my innocent beginnings, I learned there were no, there was no real protection for me but flight and drug use. Fortunately, abusive types, types seek out young children. Children are easy prey. Even running always proved futile. Coming to accept that men were abusive, I then was accepting of abusive men. When I felt the physical abuse from one lover was too much, I would leave and struggle to conceal my lack of real self-esteem by obtaining money. That the money was often obtained by self-degrading and punishing activities only drove me to further inner conflict. The next lover would emerge and the dynamic of my victim personality would make certain that he would be able and willing to further degrade me. All the while I sensed my inner growing despair and the emptiness that comes from involvement in relationships that do not nurture, but destroy. Lies created in emergency rooms when asked, how did that happen? In between the stitches that pull your torn flesh together again, you figure out the plausible accident excuse. Cracked bones and broken eardrums help you find the needed inspiration for the necessary tale. Where I separate my drug-induced psychosis from my participation in the crime is my history of abuse. It was my victim personality that worked as it did under the psychosis, enabling Ken to manipulate and control me as he did. My anger had turned upon myself. I assumed total responsibility for all the abuse I had undergone. I would always be more inclined to elevate the abuser in my life than disclaim his rightness. I blamed myself and believed all event, event, bad events were due to my native inferiority and masochistic drives. In other words, I believed I created the abuser. Further, that they were in fact my victims. This was a characteristic argument told to me by my abusers, and I believed them. I made them hit me. I made them beat me. It was all my fault. My inner thoughts and feelings were secret, and I had no real friends to confide in. I learned early in life that it was a weakness to talk about one's pain. Not only was it a weakness to complain, but it was a way to evoke more wrath. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Ken epitomized the king of abusers. It was like being chased by demons all your life, stabbed and beaten with their pitchforks, until in your flight to escape them, you end the chase only to find yourself gasping and exhausted at the devil's feet. Somehow you must find a door leading out of Hades. My crime was the only part of that exit. The other part was to be convicted and finally find myself in a world without men. Prison. Men equaled abuse. Equaled despair. Equaled hell. At my arrest, the detectives told me I'd led them to me, that the way I committed the crime was such as though I wanted to get caught. They wanted to know how such an intelligent young woman could have failed to the extent I did, unless intending to be captured. They also said that Ken had used other women before me to try to get him off his charges, as I had. He had professed complete devotion and love to each of them, and of course a wish for marriage. 
I, unlike the others, took further steps in achieving his ambitions. I, of course, was was insane, naturally. As much as I had wanted to be a nice girl who did the right things and walked in favor of her parents' expectation, events and realities outside my control dictated my future. I had street in me. I had to survive. I survived barely. And now I'm going to pass this to Jackie. So Jackie, will you take this from here? And last uh, line. Well, okay, but before I begin this, uh, let me ask you this. When you came out of prison, did you notice a difference with racism? Did you experience less racism when you got out much of prison? Much less, much less. For one of the things that I had done was dye my hair blonde. Um, and back then, it was okay for a Latina to have blonde hair. You could almost pass for a white, and I did. So that made my life a lot easier. Interesting. Okay. I'm going to continue here. I'm on page 147. As much as I had wanted to be a nice girl who did the right things and walked in the favor of her parents' expectations, events and realities outside my control dictated my future. I had street in me. I had to survive. I survived barely. My knowledge of the world based on firsthand experiences purchased in blood, sweat, and tears had not come cheap. While I preferred the world reflected in other children's eyes, I recognized that their reality came from a privileged vantage point that bore no relation to me. Why they had what was out of reach for me was a mystery. I chalked that up to fate. To balance the conflict between what I longed for and what I was, I hid in a frantic pursuit of denial and repression. The world which my family espoused as being plain black and white with no grays eluded me. My mother's silence and complete absorption into religion, work, and study was a powerful message in itself, but one which, try as I might, eluded me. I was practicing life as an atheist. Every prayer for protection seemed to sure to make seemed sure to make matters change, not in the least. I saw tragedy, but sheltered my mind by creative illusion. To have accepted that would hurt me was bad, would have been more than my psyche could bear, for my existence was steeped routinely in such badness, quote-unquote badness. I had to redeem the world around me, or surely I would be destroyed. Creative illusion was my salvation. I began writing poetry and songs, dancing my anxieties away, the world I created was a kinder one than the real one I had always known. 1961. So many people. Me and Daddy's arms at the microphone. Everyone claps their hands, just like at the television studio when I modeled for the cameras as he showed them the beautiful painting of me he had done. Muy bonita, they all say. Beautiful, they call me. They clap when I dance and they clap when I smile, except for the fat man. He only smiles when I am told to sit in his lap. He hurts me. He hurts me. 1962. Hospitals and shots. I'm dying. I'm sick. I hurt. Too many tubes and needles in me. I'm so weak. God is good. God is great. Then, God, stop the pain, please. I'll be a good girl. I promise. 1963. Hospitals and shots. I'm dying. I'm sick. God, I was good and you didn't care because you're not there and I don't care how many times they wash out my mouth. With soap for saying it, 
God is dead. I wish I was dead too. My suicide attempts were cries for help. The first occurred in jail after my arrest. The second attempt was after my conviction. They were bloody and frightening. I recall a sense of escalating hysteria within me that led to the actual events. When I used the broken jar and razor blades, I was at such a hysterical pitch I didn't really feel the pain. Or perhaps the inner terrors were so much stronger than the many cuts on my wrist, arm, and throat. It was to live a human horror show, after which I sensed that I was sick and needed help. Then began a near-six-year regimen of routine and frequent therapy in prison. I accosted any and all personnel, psychiatrists, psychologists, psychiatric social workers, family social workers, counselors, teachers, and volunteer group therapists. My persistent pursuit of these professionals for their time and help was even mentioned in, in my prison reports, which stated something to the effect that I was bothering medical staff in the obviously foolish believe they could help solve my problems. I also consumed books about psychology, relationships, addiction, love, health, criminal behavior, therapeutic solutions to illness, seeking anything that seemed to relate to my situation and personality behavioral problems. Between all the therapy, study, and courses I took in college, I discovered old habits and behaviors are not easy to stop or change. Consequently, I've lived in a self-analytical life where I question my feelings, desires, and actions regularly, always checking and balancing, in part, that never stops into being. In part, that never stops. Okay. That's, that's all we have for today. Um, all right. That, uh, that's where it ends. Do you have any questions, uh, any issues that you want me to elucidate? Uh, I wanted you to talk about your suicide experience a little bit and, and just the whole suicide experience in prison because you weren't the only one that this happened to. Yes, I've lost um, friends to suicide. Um, one was Tony, and we were in Adseg, and um, she had she had been getting egged on. I wasn't on the same uh, same wing that she was. Adseg is administrative segregation. Yes, yes. Tony was there. She had mental issues, but nonetheless was put in Adseg because we really didn't have facilities for people that had mental issues. I was there for um, institutional, you know, the institutional reasons. They thought that um, I was a rebel rouser because I filed lawsuits and um, filed complaints and contacted Department of Agriculture because we had rotten food and contacted newspapers when women were raped and that type of thing. So I was put in ADSEG as a threat to the orderly operations of the institution. Tony was on the other wing during this episode, and apparently some of the bad women were locked up beside her in cells nearby where um, she could hear what they would say, and they would taunt her because there's um, a horrible thing that happens when people are put in isolation units. People, uh, most people, lose their sanity, so to speak. Um, it is considered a torture, and um, it's used a lot in prisons to try to break one's spirit. 
Well, Tony had these mental issues, and she only had another three to six months more of prison, and then she was going to be released out where she could have contact with her children. Her life basically evolved around her children. But um, with these other women egging her on to commit suicide because she cried all the time for her children, they egged her on and just by saying mean things to her, saying, you know, uh, excuse my language here, yo, bitch, just shut the fuck up. Always whining and complaining about this or that. You need to kill yourself, bitch. Yeah, kill yourself. And it was really rough language and a lot of verbal cruelty. Well, she waited for the cops to do their um, their hall checks. And when they came, she said she needed to get some clean cleanser for her room. So they brought her a gallon of cleanser so she could wash her walls or whatever. And uh, she drank that. Well, on top of that, she had been saving her medication for about a week. And she was on psychotropic medications. So she had those stashed as well. Um, she also got her hands on some bleach. And from what I understand, she consumed all of these things simultaneously in an attempt to commit suicide. Um, I would say it was mostly because of the other women that um, were saying such cruel things to her and giving her a sense of hopelessness. Mm, mm, mm. And so one night, um, the nurse comes and does the evening check, and they just thought she was sleeping. So it was the next morning, and they do the morning checks with the nurses checking to see if everyone's alive or what, what condition they're in. And when they went to Tony's cell, she didn't respond. So, of course, now they called in extra guards. So more guards came, and they entered her cell, and she was totally out of it, you know, unconscious. And they said, she's dead. And everyone's horrified. Oh, my God, she is dead. She really did it. So now they call the Tragic. coroner's office, and the coroner's office comes down because every time someone dies, you have to call the coroner's office. So um, they, the coroner's office came, and they're talking to the nurse, saying, um, "How? When was, aren't you supposed to do hall checks to make sure they're alive and so forth? And the nurse on duty, whose responsibility it was, said, Oh, I've been doing my hall checks and checking on their wellness, and she was fine just two hours ago. And this was what was so staggering. The coroner stated to the nurse, Ma'am, that's impossible. Rigor mortis has already set in. What that meant was that she had neglected to make sure Tony was all right. Had she really done her job, she would have known when Tony was unconscious. When rigor mortis sets in, from what I understand, it takes about 10 hours. Yeah, it takes hours. So she was already dead for 10 hours. So when she was doing her shifts of wellness checks, saying that Tony was fine and writing them on her charts that Tony was fine. It was all a farce. It was a lie. Um, so that was one of the deaths. Uh, another one was Phyllis. Uh, she also lived in Adseg with me. She was down two cells. And Phyllis was um, a very restrained woman. She did not engage in conversation with the other inmates. 
I tried, you know, to get her out of her shell, but I couldn't do it. And my my way is to try to strengthen the women there, not pull them down. Um, I thought I think that that's cruel, and I would fight against that kind of cruelty and ter- ter- tyranny. And um, so at this particular time, uh, Phyllis, who lived two cells down from me in Ad's sake, um, decided that she was going to commit suicide without unbeknownst to anyone you know she didn't talk to people she just did solitary time and I tried to get her to talk on occasion and she just she didn't respond so this was evening probably about 11 o'clock after 11 o'clock um walkthroughs that they that they do to check to see if the inmates are alive and da 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 that they're still there um she had taken a sheet and ripped it and made it into a noose and she put this fabric through one of the rungs of the heating vent and what was so astonishing was that the heating vent with the rope on it she could still touch the floor so how on earth was she able to commit suicide and hang herself well she was in such a state a state of depression and desire to end her life that she must have raised her feet while the rope was around her neck and even though you know the normal people if we're in that situation we're going to put our our feet down even if we want to commit suicide because there's something instinctual about us that life carries on even when we feel sad and depressed with uh, Phyllis, it didn't carry on. She died from hanging herself. And it was a very sad and horrific um, time for all of us that were there with her um, and knew what had happened. You know, the guards, they start talking and then the information comes out. And again, the coroner was called and... Um, they take the body and then they do their assessments and they concluded it was a suicide. Um, but it was just, you know, another one of the things just kicks the breath out of your lungs. And Is there any kind of counseling that they have available for inmates to not, prevent suicide? or uh, Not for ADSEG people. They are supposed to offer some type of counseling with a therapist um, and you might be able to see that therapist once a month or once a week depending upon what status you're on however it all comes down to a therapist can only do so much when you take a human being and put them in an isolation cell and they're freezing cold 24 hours a day mm-hmm. there's no hygiene materials um, after Tony's death, no inmates were allowed to have cleansers in their room to clean up anything. So it was pretty bad, really, really bad, filth-wise. And you okay. would get boils on your body and that type of thing. So the counseling, um, if you got the counseling, how, how much could it carry you through the agonist hours of living in isolation in what they call the hole? 
it's a type of torture. It is. It is. It is a type of torture. Well, thank you for sharing those stories with us. You're welcome. I, I wish that they were more uplifting, but as the book progresses and my sanity becomes more intact, um, my health, mental health, um, it was a journey for me. And as we get further into my book, then you'll start hearing about the transforming and uh, against all odds. So thank you for having me here, Jackie. Is there any other question that I can answer? Uh, no, I just wanted to quickly shout out to everyone out there that's been listening to our podcast. I want to say thank you for tuning in. We really, really appreciate that. I appreciate that because it's something that I want to see grow. And because of that, I set up a Patreon account for Museum Americana, which is sponsoring the podcast. That's great. So if people can go to our website, museumamericana.com, they can keep track of our blogs there and they'll see what's going on with us. And then, of course, if you go to Patreon forward slash Museum Americana, become a patron and support all our work. And what are the rates for patrons you had told me? Well, there's a there's a elite there's a tier for elite members and that is three dollars a month. And there's different rewards that we give for our tier members. Um, and then there's a five dollar a month tier and then there's a ten dollar a month tier. And those three different tiers, I wanted to keep it minimal. So I set up those three different tiers for our patrons. And they can go to the website and see the rewards that we offer for those tiers to support our channel and to support our growth. Because right now, you guys, we only have 34 subscribers on YouTube, Museum Americana on YouTube. We can do a lot better than that. Yes, please, please spread the word out. Um, I hope that as we get deeper into my writings that you'll find it um, enlightening and somewhat interesting i hope yes yes and we've got more to share uh a will, lot more we will see you on our next episode episode seven of 23 years in prison and veronica will be sharing of course more of her writings from sister me and uh we'll we'll see you then thank you for having me jackie at jack's corner um, I appreciate the opportunity to share these uh, very private writings. You're welcome, Duchess. And I'm very, very honored to have you here and, well, thank and, you. and share your experiences with, with our audience. Thank you. All right, you guys. We'll see you next Sunday. Okay, peace out to the world and stay safe. Uh, please stay safe. All right, we're out. <laughs>